Welcome to The Great Podcast, a show where we take a look at the important men and women of history and decide, once and for all, if they are worth all the fuss. I'm Jordan. And I'm doing a little chuckle because you got it right. <laughs> I, yeah. Well done. <laughs> Nailed it. That's right. So proud. No practice. Who needs well, it? Well, welcome to episode 1.19, the man, the myth, the legend, Constantine. Oh, everyone knows that name. I, well, okay, so good. Uh, after we do the imagine if you will thing, I have a question for you. But let's just jump right into it because we got a lot to talk about today. So imagine if you will. The palace is filled with men drinking and making merry. The emperor sits on a cushioned chair, leaning heavily from the liquor in his veins. A young man approaches. The emperor rolls his eyes, ready for the annoying brat to bother him yet again. And so he does. Emperor. I come to request leave to visit my father. He has sent for me and I must go. The aging emperor rubs at his bloodshot eyes. Would this boy not just let him drink in peace? Even at a party, the runt was yapping away about fleeing the court. Fine, the emperor sighed. Just leave and say no more to me in this lifetime if you'd be so kind. Without hesitation, the young man rushes off, not giving the emperor a chance to change his mind. He grabs the bag of belongings he had stashed in his room and rushes to the stables. In short order, he is on the road, riding west as fast as he can. At each post house, he pays the man for a horse, then slashes the hamstrings of the rest before continuing his journey through the night. Come morning, the emperor awakes with a hangover and a horrible realization. His prize hostage has flown the coop. He immediately orders his men to give chase, but... It's no good. By the time they reach the first post house, their mounts are exhausted. And, surprise, surprise, some psycho went through and mutilated all the spares. And so the young man escapes his captors and rides for home. A home he has not seen in nearly a decade. And there we go. My God, what a psychopath. Yeah, crazy. That's yeah. not cool, man. I wonder all who that, that guy horse was. abuse. Yeah. So normally we would open with a recap of what we talked about last time in mm -hmm. our longest mm -hmm. episode ever. Mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. almost three hours. It was a lot. Yeah. But today we are talking about someone who was present in Diocletian's reign throughout all of it. And that's Constantine. So let's see. What do you know, Jordan, about Constantine? No, no. I mean, nothing other than the name is familiar, really. I don't know any specific details. Really? Yeah. Nothing at all. No. Nothing comes to mind. No. Interesting. No. God. Yeah. Okay. Well, when that's sad. When you say things, I'll probably remember you things. Jog a little but, bit. Yeah, yeah. I wondered because I'm, I'm so blinded now by my love of history that I don't sure. know what, you know, average people know. I figured he was the name. Like you said, everyone probably knows the name. Yeah. But I bet a lot of people don't know much about him. So Correct. let's look at him. Constantine was born on February 27th, 272 CE, smack dab in the middle of Aurelian's glorious five-year reign. His father, as we saw last time, was Flavius Constantius, uh, the man who would become junior emperor under Maximian. But at the time of Constantine's birth, Constantius was busy climbing up the ranks of the military. I have seen that Constantius was Aurelian's Praetorian prefect and that he was in the Protectores Augusti Nostri, which is like the emperor's favorite officers. Mm. So he's already climbing the ranks. Uh, with his father off making a name for himself, Constantine grew up with his mother, Helena, who was a low-born Greek woman who Constantius likely met while serving in Aurelian's Palmyrene campaigns when he went out east to retake Palmyra. The two probably met in Asia Minor, when she, where she is from, and sources are unclear if she was Constantius's legal wife or just his concubine. 
Whatever he was to Constantius, or whatever she was to Constantius, she was Constantine's loving mother, and the two were always very close. Like so many emperors of the last century, Constantine was born near the Danube in Nisus, which is in modern Syria, Serbia. Excuse me. Being the son of a high-ranking soldier, the boy was likely always on the move in those tumultuous years between Aurelian and Diocletian. We spent a lot of time talking about those years, which is why the Diocletian episode was so long. Constantius had been appointed governor of Dalmatia by Carus. Remember, Carus was right before Diocletian mm-hmm, came into power. Mm-hmm. When Diocletian and Carinus duked it out for the empire, it appears that Constantius went, I need to choose the correct side here, and he did. He went over to Diocletian's side right before the final fight. Constantine would have been around 13 years old when Diocletian took power and made Maximian his co-Augustus. That change in administration meant a change in scenery for the family, who had grown up in the near and far east, because now Constantius was to be a member of Maximian's court in the west. Gaul, as you will remember, was not in a good state when Maximian went up there. It had recently been reconquered by Aurelian and since then had seen nothing but unrest and upheaval. After Constantius's term as governor up there, he assumed a position in Max- as Maximian's Praetorian Prefect. So he may be Praetorian Prefect for the second time, if it's true that he was mm. for Aurelian. This wasn't some cushy job. As we saw, Constantius and Maximian would spend the next two years fighting the Alamanni and spending a good amount of time fighting across the Rhine in barbarian territory. Seeing this partnership as advantageous, the two men decided that Constantius should leave Helena and marry Maximian's stepdaughter, Theodora. Yeah, naturally. It makes sense. It is unclear what the next four years held for Helena and Constantine, but they were probably kept close and comfortable while the emperors fought their wars and whatnot. But in 293 CE, Constantius and Galerius were officially elevated to Caesar Mm. with the power of junior emperors. Constantius was immediately tasked with taking Britain back from Carousius and Electus. Constantine was around 20 by this point, and it was looking like the young man might follow in his father's footsteps and become the next member of the Tetrarchy. With that in mind, it was decided that Constantine needed a worldly education. He would be sent across the empire to live with and study under the man, the myth, the legend, Diocletian. What an opportunity. This is a big opportunity, but you might be asking yourself, why would he go off to live on the other side of the empire and learn from Diocletian when his father was doing the same exact job right there at that very moment? I don't know. Maybe daddy's going to die soon. Oh, interesting. Well, (laughs) I, I think there are probably three kind of pieces in this. First, the current Tetrarchs were all experienced military men Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who had traveled the empire far and wide, and it would do Constantine well to move about the lands he would one day rule. Sure. So get him out there. Diocletian was also the top dog, and learning from him would gain him prestige and experience that even Constantius could not provide. And the final thing is none of the Tetrarchs trusted each other. Yeah. And holding someone's son hostage. Oh, that's good. Is a good way to make sure they stand by. Sure, 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 sure. It's a very nice hostage situation so long as dad stays nice. It's kind of, it's really a win-win though. It is. I mean, your son gets this elevated status even more than you can provide to learn probably more, experience a little bit more, and then uh, you just have a forced good relationship. Exactly. Like, you won't rise up, we'll all stay stable, and your son will get a good education. It'll be wonderful. It'll be great. And so, off Constantine went. As we saw, Diocletian was rarely stationary in his two decades of rule. 
As David Potter puts it in Constantine the Emperor, quote, to be a court courtier of Diocletian was to be a traveler. And while some cities were equipped with the infrastructure of palaces and all that went with them, court life was not the same as palace life. The young man would have arrived somewhere in the eastern half of the empire, wherever Diocletian happened to be at the time. There, he began his formal education, where he learned the common eastern language of the empire, which was Greek, furthered his Latin literature understanding, and studied philosophy. It is important to note that Diocletian is thought to have exclusively dealt with his subjects in Latin, despite ruling mostly Greek speakers in the east. One document shows him hearing a petition in Greek and responding to the petitioners in Latin. This is speculated to have been an attempt to increase his aura of separateness and superiority, along with Diocletian's personal conservative bent toward the traditional, which means speaking Latin. Still, Constantine learned his Greek well and spoke it with those around him during informal meetings. So he's getting very worldly. Constantine also had to learn the rules, explicit and unwritten, of living in the imperial court. Again, David Potter says, quote, Court life involved participation in a hierarchically organized community that could function as the effective government of a great empire at whatever point it might stop for the night. So that's a lot. You have to learn things. Even though he's the heir apparent, Constantine would have been playing the Game of Thrones, so mm -hmm, to speak. Mm -hmm. You, Who do you talk to? When do you be formal and informal? How do you look the part of the esteemed Caesar of a Caesar? Another interesting bit that Potter goes into at length is the preparations towns and cities had to undertake when Diocletian announced his court would be coming their way. Letters that are from Egypt around 298 CE show an increasingly anxious procurator trying to get everything ready and facing all the usual hurdles of trying to organize people and supplies. There is even a portion of one letter that has a strong, as per my previous email vibe, uh, when this poor guy is trying desperately to get things situated as imperial officials are arriving in his city ahead of the main column. He's like, we're not ready. And speaking of the main column, I found it really interesting to learn the scale of these imperial processions. Obviously, the emperor does not travel alone or no. even in a small no. entourage. Uh, how many people do you think made up Diocletian's court on the move? Average. Okay, so we got the main man. We've probably got a handful of advisors. We need guards uh, for protection. And then you need protection for the advisors. Enough people to bring supplies, potentially keep up the palace and whatnot on the move or their camp. Oh, man, probably like 180 to 250. Oh, no. So much bigger. So much bigger. That's wild. Yeah. yeah what do you bring, like, a division of soldiers with him? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, so <laughs> it's speculated that Diocletian's bodyguards, which were both infantry and cavalry, mm -hmm. numbered around 3,000 men. <laughs> just always. Yeah. Just, I have 3,000 men around me. Uh, no. Just for fighting. Just for fighting. And then the rest. <laughs> and then the rest. Yeah. <laughs> that number, again, oh made up these God. servants, low-level bureaucrats, the highest mm. members of state, slaves. People take care of the horses. Everything. The highest members of state are just traveling with yeah. them everywhere. They are the government. Oh, and where Diocletian is, that's the where the... The traveling government. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it, it worked. But yeah, so we're talking yeah. like 6,000 people. That's um, wild. Now, Jordan and I grew up in a town, 5,000, 5,500 people. About. If you were to just take all those people and put them into a yeah. medieval town, yeah. they would have like 
there's no ability to just, house them to feed them. them. Yeah. Be crazy. And Diocletian was moving all the time. He'd just be like, hey, we'll be there in a month. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready, bro. Go fence off an area and bring yeah. a water trough. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, these, these guys play, obviously, a hugely important role to the state. And one that is super important was ensuring the gods were happy. To Naturally. us. Yeah, right. See, like, that response is exactly... To us, it seems superstitious. It's mm-hmm. weird. But the pagan Romans would have put great stock in the results of animal sacrifices, especially when the emperor was performing the rites. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the sacred role of the emperor to keep good relations between the gods and mankind. Constantine would have been present and probably up close and personal during many of these rites. He would have seen Diocletian say a prayer to the gods. Uh, incense would be burnt. The animal would be brought in and stunned with a hammer to the head before having its throat slit. The guts would then be read by experienced priests, and the innards would be burned at the altar. The meat would be quickly butchered and prepared. The emperor and all those present would then dine on the beast. Mm -hmm, Basically mm -hmm. sharing a meal with the gods was the idea. But these pagan rites were not all the young man encountered in his travels. As we saw last time, the little piece of the church was still ongoing at this time, and Christians worked in the imperial government alongside their pagan neighbors. Constantine would have met and lived around Christians, Jews, and pagans throughout his time in the East. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But life in the court of Diocletian was not all intellectual discussion and traveling from city to city. As we know, this is the end of the crisis, which means there is war almost everywhere, all the time. (laughs) It would seem that Constantine learned the art of war under both Galerius and Diocletian. He fought around Asia Minor, Turkey, in his earliest campaigns, and then did the natural thing and fought some barbarians along the Danube. Mm, Yes. By 297 CE, the Persian War was underway. Diocletian was holding the southern flank in Syria with Constantine by his side, kicking Persian ass. From 298 to 299, he served under Galerius as the Romans advanced into Mesopotamia, which you'll recall is that chunk of land that the two empires have been fighting over for generations. It is unclear to me if Constantine sat in on the peace negotiations of the Persians or if he was present when that envoy came to Galerius like, hey, can we have the emperor's wives and sons back? You can keep Mm -hmm, the girls. mm -hmm. Uh, He's probably around the talks at the very least. He was also likely present or around when shortly after this military victory in 299 CE, Diocletian and Galerius attempted another sacrifice. Pretty normal thing. But things did not go as planned. Apparently, they slaughtered many animals and were not getting good results. The head priest of this endeavor leaned over and whispered that some Christians in the room had made that weird crucifix sign that they did, and now the rites were not working. (laughs) Ruined. They ruined it. Absolutely ruined the slaughter of all these animals, frankly. Diocletian ordered... (laughs) I just had a PETA joke pop into my head, but I'll just keep (laughs) moving. (laughs) Diocletian ordered everyone in the palace to make a sacrifice immediately. This place must have smelled like dead animals for weeks. Then he sent orders out that all military personnel must also perform sacrifice or face flogging. This, as we saw, was a sudden attack on a community who had been working comfortably in the background for decades. Mm -hmm. Few remembered Valerian's edict against the Christians and fewer still that of Decius. But this was just a taste of what was to come. Yeah, another directly indirect attack on them. No, 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 no. We didn't say Christian specifically. We just said everyone. 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 They stare at you. Yeah, very hard (laughs) stare. I can see you're not doing it. Everyone needs to do it. Everyone. We're not singling you out, though. (laughs) Not you. Everyone else is doing it. I don't know why you guys are being weird. Everyone else is doing it. So... 
Constantine continued moving about a vastly diverse empire alongside Diocletian. He spent a good deal of his years with the man in Egypt. You will recall that Diocletian and Galerius had put down several revolts in the late 290s related to a census and also because the Egyptians have a rebellious streak that we have seen. I read in Potter that part of this unrest was due to an order Diocletian sent out reaffirming that one should not marry their close relatives or they would risk losing their citizenship. That's a good idea for genetics, too. It to is. Just, you know, not but do that. We saw all the way back with Cleopatra in Julius Caesar's episode that she was married to her brother before Caesar arrived. It was a fairly common practice in the region to interfamily marry. And this pissed a lot of people off. They're like, if I can't marry my sister, how am I going to get a wife? Exactly. I didn't mean to. I shouldn't have put on a that southern was, accent. That was real. Uh, <laughs> that was direct. That was pretty direct. That was targeted. <laughs> <laughs> targeted violence. Anyway, you might also remember that around 302 CE, Diocletian was in Egypt and got real upset at the Manichaeans, who were openly hostile to the imperial office and the Roman pantheon. In March of that year, with Constantine probably sitting nearby, Diocletian called for the Manichaeans to be wiped out, strip their property, kill some, send the elites to the mines. We read through that whole thing last time. What Constantine thought about all this is unknown. Perhaps he was horrified at the violence. Perhaps he agreed that these people were threats to society and must be dealt with. But in 302 CE, Constantine returned to Nicomedia, Diocletian's capital, where Galerius and the Augustus were awaiting a reply from the Oracle of Apollo. Mm. Constantine witnessed the messenger's arrival with the Oracle's response. Go ahead. Persecute the Christians. Ah, just, it's just, fine. Eh, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Do it. And so it began. The new church in Nicomedia was raided and then torn apart with hammers and picks. That was to prevent the fires from burning well, everything sure. else. Yeah, yeah. This was followed by an empire-wide decree, then several more over the coming months. These saw Christians being outed and berated, sometimes beaten, often arrested, and occasionally killed. Properties were seized, clergymen targeted. The option was simple. Stop being Christian or face the government's wrath. Yeah, easy. It's so easy. Well, no, it's simple. <laughs> it's not easy. It's simple. <laughs> Although, as with all edicts in a vast ancient empire, this persecution was prosecuted differently across mm -hmm. different regions. It appears Constantius and Maximian in the West issued the first edict alongside their eastern brothers, but the subsequent ones that were a bit harsher were far less publicized and were not enforced from the top level. Constantine would later paint himself as having tried to stop Diocletian and the hated Galerius for doing such a horrible thing. But there is no strong evidence that he tried to talk the two out of it. And like, <laughs> how could he have? No, you know? don't. Yeah, stop. Oh. I, I, with all my authority, I demand <laughs> you yeah. stop. Like, oh, hey guys, that's kind of, it's kind of a lot, like, isn't ooh. it? It's kind of a lot, isn't it? <laughs> okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. You do you. I just wanted yeah, yeah. to, you know, just wanted to voice my opinion there. According to the Christian sources, everyone was afraid of Galerius, the mad pagan fanatic who would watch the world burn just to see the Christians burn with it. But. Speaking of the hated Galerius, perhaps now is a good time to discuss the two primary sources who really hate Galerius of this time period, Eusebius and Lactantius. Eusebius of Caesarea was a historian primarily of Christian history and the scriptures themselves. He's often considered one of the most educated theologians of his era. 
He also wrote in great detail about how various Roman emperors treated Christians. There are wonderful chapter titles like How Tiberius Was Affected When Informed by Pilate Concerning Christ and The Persecution Under Nero in which Paul and Peter were honored at Rome with martyrdom on behalf of religion. Wonderful. Put that in a book. (laughs) This included his thoughts on the great persecution through which he lived. On top of all his Christian writings, he wrote a biography of Constantine shortly after Constantine died. We will see that the two form a friendship and partnership of sorts as they both climb the ranks of their respective fields. Constantine as emperor, Eusebius as a bishop and influential voice in the development of Christianity. Nice. Much of what we know about Constantine comes from this biography, which you can already guess is heavily biased in Constantine's favor. Just a little, probably. Heavily. (laughs) So heavily. Uh, It has been difficult to vet out good sources on Constantine because anything written with any Christian bent Uh will naturally paint him in the best light possible and remove any other mm, that every human being has in their life. We don't worry about that. Right. It's fine. Mm -hmm. I mentioned Lactantius, the other guy, a couple times in Diocletian's episode because we use some of his quotes. He is sometimes called the Christian Cicero for being so influential with his writings. His main work was The Divine Institutions, which was used to convince pagans of how logical and reasonable Christianity was to help them convert. Oh, He would also go on to be a close advisor to Constantine and would help shape the emperor's opinion of Christianity. On top of that, he will be the tutor of Constantine's son, who we will meet soon. With all that out of the way, let's now look at the final years of Diocletian's reign. So following the onset of the Great Persecution, Diocletian made his final trip to Rome in the winter of 303 CE. Grand celebrations were held for the victory in Persia, the Tetrarchy's 10th anniversary, and Diocletian and Maximian's 20th year of rule. It is possible that Diocletian told Maximian of his plan to abdicate while the two were in the Eternal City. Whether or not this is true is lost to history. What we do know is that Diocletian then left Rome in a huff because everyone kept trying to like talk to him and stuff. Sure. Like, Why would they do that? Don't they Leave know me alone. that busy. I am a god? <laughs> oh, you're beneath me. Okay, I see. Yeah. Call me Kanye. God, I got to quit with these... <laughs> got to quit with these. Okay. So then Diocletian got really sick. <laughs> anyway, uh, Maximian and Galerius uh, met up and had their very stormy meeting, probably discussing Galerius's plan for the succession. Diocletian then spent some time fighting alongside Galerius on the Danube, still sick. And so he headed home to Nicomedia. Mm. There he spent his final year of rule, holed up and quite unwell. There was a brief scare where rumors were spread that Diocletian had died, but then the man presented himself to the public for the first time in months. Next, he called for high-ranking members of the empire to gather at the place where he had first been acclaimed as emperor. Oh. A column had been erected at the spot with a statue of Jupiter at its top. The old emperor rode in on a carriage to the location with throngs of men and women lining his path. Constantine sat on the platform with a bunch of senior senators and generals while Diocletian stepped forward in his magnificent purple robes. Diocletian announced that he and Maximian would step down, leaving Galerius and Constantius in charge, with Constantius being the senior of the two, despite Galerius serving under Diocletian. 
Next came the announcement of who the two new Caesars would be. In Milan, this same announcement was being made. Maximian and Constantius were holding their own ceremony where Maximian explained their decision to step down and leave power in the hands of their Caesars. Maximian's son, Maxentius, was there as well, eager and excited to begin his reign. Now, I was a little dismissive last time about Maximian. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, he appointed Constantius, but he had a son. Well, the case for that is that um, Maxentius was two when his father came to power and around 12 when Constantius was named Caesar. They wanted a proper ruler, Mm -hmm. not Mm -hmm. an heir, you know? Mm -hmm. So it made sense. Constantine, meanwhile, was about to taste freedom and power for the first time after years of being kept from his family and held, for all intents and purposes, as a hostage for his father's good behavior. Now he could rule his own destiny, and so could Maxentius. Then Diocletian announced the names of the two new Caesars, Severus and Maximinus. And he's like, huh? What? what Excuse that? me? Huh? Uh, you you mispronounced my name, I think. Yeah, no, no, it's Maxentius and Se- no Constantine. Yeah, you mispronounced that one pretty bad. Yeah, well, you're probably confused <laughs> uh, about who these two guys are. Well, according to several writers, everyone was very confused at this announcement. <laughs> the crowd says, huh? Excuse, uh, what? And none more so than Constantine, who must have been completely blindsided. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, this is one of the reasons ancient writers like think Galerius was manipulating an aging and unwell Diocletian when he forced the resignation and his own choices as Caesar, because we will see that these were Galerius's choices. None of that is known for sure, though. Sure. Somehow, Maximian had been convinced not to elevate his own son, (laughs) and it appears that Constantius was kept completely in the dark because he was being made senior emperor. Maybe he was made senior emperor and Galerius chose the Caesars? But that also yeah, seems weird. weird. It's weird it's that he would weird. take the se- senior role, but then not choose his own Caesar. Yeah. So something, that's where the theory that Galerius was pulling the strings comes from. Well, and it makes and sense. Sick, yeah. Yeah. And it does make sense. Galerius clearly seemed that he planned to rule the Tetrarchy with his two appointed men, which would put Constantius, his new co-emperor, at a grave disadvantage. So David Potter has a nice quote on this scene as it played out. Quote, The chief actor in Nicomedia was Galerius, who brought Maximinus forward to face Diocletian. Diocletian removed the purple cloak from around his shoulders. He placed it on Maximinus. In so doing, he ceased to be emperor. One can only imagine what it was to witness this. Tens of thousands must have held their breath while the act took place. The most powerful man in the world Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. suddenly was not. For the first and only time, the Roman emperors had resigned. Potter wraps this section up nicely, and I like the foreshadowing, so here it is. Quote, Constantine's impression of that day would emerge over time. He would never build a retirement palace. He preferred to die in office. Retirement was one act of Diocletian's he could never hope to match. But now, let's take a look at the two new Caesars. Maximinus Dia... Uh, This is the guy that Galerius decided to appoint for himself, and it was his nephew. I've also seen other relations. We're going to go with nephew. Mm -hmm. This was the approximately 35-year-old Galerius Valerius Maximinus, born to Galerius' sister around 270. So he's the same age as Constantine. Uh, This is, again, during Aurelian's reign. His name was originally Daza, D-A-Z-A, which meant something. Uh, We're just not sure what. 
Lactantius throws a wrench into this man's name by probably misspelling it and calling him <laughs> Dia, D-A-I-A. Normally, I would just avoid this and call him Maximinus, but we already have a Maximian and mm-hmm. a Maxentius. Mm-hmm. So what's confusing about it? Oh, it's <laughs> super simple, but just to make it a little bit clear, I'm going to call him Maximinus Dia, okay. just because I like it better than Daza. Sure. So that's it. It's the only reason. It appears that Maximinus Dia did good work in the military, rising up alongside his successful uncle. While Galerius became emperor, he had, or when Galerius became emperor, he adopted his nephew, making him his son, heir, and junior emperor in the east. Constantius's new Caesar would be a man called Severus, known to us as Severus II, because of mm-hmm. Septimius. Mm-hmm. He was born somewhere in northern Illyria, sometime in the mid-third century. Like the other emperors of the Tetrarchy, he was a military man and had formed a friendship with Galerius as they rose through the ranks. He continued to serve alongside his old friend until Galerius became Augustus in 305 CE. Galerius had fought hard to convince Diocletian that Severus was the man for the job. But according to Lactantius, who probably doesn't actually know this, when Galerius first mentioned Severus to the emperor as a choice for Caesar, Diocletian responded, What? That dancer? That habitual (laughs) drunkard who turns night into day and day into night? That sounds like a superpower. (laughs) <laughs> that does sound like super <laughs> Well, apparently Diocletian was not a fan, but Lactantius may also just be making stuff up. Sure. Anyway, Galerius managed to convince or coerce Diocletian into appointing Severus as Constantius's Caesar. This must have been wonderful for Constantius, who now had a Caesar of obviously dubious loyalties supposedly watching his back. Severus swore to obey his Augustus, obviously, but everyone knew whose man he truly was. So let's stick with Severus for a moment, because some of Galerius's very first orders as Augustus directly affected his time in Italy, which is where he was going to be stationed. As one would imagine, Maximian and Constantius had built up a solid administrative apparatus around themselves in the West. Maximian had been in charge for two decades, Constantius for one. The local aristocrats of Milan and Rome were close acquaintances and friends with the Augustus and Caesar, Severus had no connections Mm -hmm. at all. He was probably lower born, a soldier who was friends with that angry and aggressive Galerius out in the east. No one knew who he was, and everyone knew he was not a friend to Constantius. So Constantine, son of Constantius, and Maxentius, son of Maximian, Mm -hmm. were overlooked in the succession for Galerius's war buddy and Galerius's nephew. Yeah, I'm sure everyone's just going to be really cool and content with that. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. For sure, for sure. Absolutely. This guy that's been, like, getting groomed to take over and the son of this other very powerful man. Also groomed to take over. I don't care. That's fine. Ah, War buddies from the guy that we don't like out in the East. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. This was made far worse when Galerius issued his first edicts almost immediately after elevating to emperor. He started off with an edict that, at great length, decried corrupt officials— and those who made false accusations to the courts. The punishments for the latter were draconian and viewed very negatively. Like you lied about reporting Mm -hmm, some mm -hmm. crime in the state. Okay, you're getting tortured. (laughs) Yeah, death. Not a good time. Yeah, This set a lot of people off, obviously. On top of that, Galerius confirmed everyone's fears that the Christian persecution, which had been imperial law for four years now, Mm -hmm. were not going to go away. Galerius sent word that what was happening under Diocletian was to continue under Galerius. 
It is important to note that these edicts were not enforced in any domains directly controlled by Constantius. Technically, okay. Severus should have followed Constantius's lead, but he obviously did as Galerius commanded. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The next edict was more immediately impactful for Severus and those he was assigned to rule. Since the beginning of this show, around the time of Julius Caesar's birth in 100 BCE, the territory of Italy had been known as the home base of the empire. Everything else was a province mm-hmm. of Italy's empire. Mm-hmm. This came with the benefit that the Italians were not included in the census oh. and thus were exempt from head and land taxes. Oh, well, a huge them. perk. Yeah, for real. We're now in 305 CE. So we're talking over 100, 400 years. Yep, yep. Sorry. <laughs> we're in 305 CE. We're talking over 400 years of a system being in place that Galerius has now unilaterally decided will no longer be in place. So like, nah. <laughs> yep. Italy, you're in the census now. And he sent Severus forward with no friends, no connections, <laughs> into enemy territory with that edict in hand. Hey, go, t- go tell them they owe us money. Yeah, go <laughs> tell them that uh, they have to pay taxes that no one in their family has ever paid. Go. Who gets the most upset when you tell them they have to pay more taxes? Uh, the rich people? Rich and powerful families yeah. of Italy. Yeah. Super outraged. How could this Danubian upstart that's out right. in the east send his errand boy How dare they? to rule them, then make decisions that should rightly be the purview of Constantius? That's right. The real man that should be in charge. He is, ostensibly. He is the senior emperor. How How is Galerius unilaterally deciding mm-hmm. that Italy mm-hmm. is paying a tax? It's... A bit seems a little it's rough. A bit tyrannical. It does. It's almost as if the tetrarchy isn't working right. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. So the situation is this. Constantius at this moment is in Gaul. And he is essentially has control of that province and Britain and maybe Spain. That's kind of mm-hmm. a new thing. He hasn't been in charge of Spain mm-hmm, before. Mm-hmm. That was Maximian. Meanwhile, Galerius has his man in Italy, and he's also controlling North Africa. Maxentius is still sitting in Rome, Maximian's son, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he's seething about being passed over as Caesar while his father, sure. Maximian, is not actually that cool with having been forced to abdicate. <laughs> yeah. Finally, Galerius has laid claim to everything from east of Italy to Syria, and then Maximinus Dia has the rest of Syria and Egypt, and that is the Tetrarchy right now. No one's really happy. No one's working together. No. This is rough. Yeah. And it also meant that Galerius essentially controlled three-fourths of the empire. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were not cool with that. Oh, and Galerius had Constantine. Mm-hmm. Because remember how Constantine living with Diocletian was like kind of like being a hostage? Sure. Now it is. Now, it's, now he's real. a hostage. Yeah, for sure. Now he's actually uh, a hostage. That. That's good. That's cool. Cool, cool, cool. The sources for this time... Then go on to claim that Galerius spent a lot of time and effort trying to get Constantine killed. Sure. 
Yeah. Uh, he would put Constantine at the head of cavalry charges and throw him in single combat <laughs> against lions and all that what? bullshit. Wait, what? No. Yeah, no, no. Okay, I was it's like, ridiculous. Wait, no, you didn't because he's still like a yeah. really powerful head of... You wouldn't just do that. And Constantius is... <laughs> just out in the open. Still out there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would say probably none of that happened. Yeah. Um, because if he wanted Constantine dead, he could have just killed Constantine and said, okay, we're at war now. Yeah. That's all yeah. it would have taken. Ridiculous. It is. But the threat was real. There was mm-hmm, a risk mm-hmm. for Constantine, and Constantius was likely the only person in the world at this point who could save his son. Mm-hmm. And he sent a demand to Galerius that Constantine come to Trier and the two could carry out a campaign in Britain. Father and son style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Senior emperor sent that letter. Mm-hmm. Galerius initially denied this demand, putting it off, delaying. But as the story goes, Constantine continued to pester the emperor. And one night, while Galerius was incredibly drunk, he granted Constantine leave just to see him gone. Just get out of my sight. Sure. And this is the story from the opening. The young man knew the emperor was likely to rescind that permission mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. soon as he awoke from a ha- with his hangover, and Constantine rode through the night. The story of the daring escape morphed and evolved over time. Some versions claim that Severus himself was sent to murder Constantine, uh, but was unable to catch him. This is obviously just slander against Severus. He shot out all the tires on it, the cars. <laughs> yeah, that's what he did. Let's say at the PG version. Yeah, he slashed those tires real he hard. Did. He did. Others tell how the genius young man rode through the night, changing horses at each post and killing or hamstringing the rest. Mm. You know, it's all just kind of like, look at how great he is. Like, he got away. He did. He's so brave. The truth is probably that Galerius got the letter and said, all right, go. Yeah. And he sent him with an envoy because, like, the only alternative was civil war. Sure. So, and they yeah. really didn't want that again right now. No. The whole point That's of the Tetrarchy was to keep things yeah, stable. stable. Yeah. yeah. Stable. So he headed back. Constantine went to return to his father. Um, the propaganda grew mm-hmm, over the mm-hmm. years. In any event, by 305, Constantine was reunited with Constantius for the first time, possibly. In over a decade. Yay. It's unclear if they ever like met up in the interim sure. while he was staying with Diocletian. But speaking of Diocletian, uh, let's do a weird thing that we've never <laughs> done before and check in on the guy from the last episode because he's still kicking around. Sure. Yeah. Because he retired, essentially. Right. <laughs> yeah. So after the abdication, he returned briefly to Nicomedia before setting out for Split, which is in modern Croatia. This is near his hometown and the location of the magnificent palace he had built for himself. Nice. This palace is still there today. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, um, and I really want to go there. This is where Diocletian went to grow his cabbages. And we'll get to that in a little bit. My cabbages! My cabbages! (laughs) I hear that they got the cabbage guy to reprise his role in God, the show. I hope so. I, yeah. yeah so. <laughs> He's got three lines. Yeah. <laughs> uh, They're all job. the same. So Constantine knew there was little he could do about the succession situation at that moment. He was probably thankful simply to have escaped Galerius with his life and freedom. Now it was time to help his father, who was embarking on a war in the northern part of Britain. But a lot of time had passed. And remember that Constantius has been separated from Constantine's mother, Helena, for over a decade at this point. Mm -hmm. Now, he had children with Maximian's daughter, Theodora. And this family was not too impressed by this 30-something dude coming back from the east and just planting himself next to the emperor. Sure. Taking essentially the inheritance of the rest of the kids. Mm -hmm. And as a side note, 
that feels like it really should not be a side note. Constantine has a son by this point called Crispus. Oh. The reason it's a side note is because we know almost nothing about his mother. Oh. She's so poorly recorded that we're not even sure if they were officially married. Sure. Her name was Minervina, and most sources refer to her as a concubine. And recall that Helena was in a similar situation, had a similar problem, where the sources refer to her as Constantius's concubine, maybe wife. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is not clear why Constantius, or excuse me, it is not clear why Constantine took his illegitimate son into his home as a proper family member. The imperial line could have been tarnished, especially if he married a noblewoman and had sons by her, which seems like a significant possibility. Mm-hmm. Regardless, mm-hmm. Crispus would have been around six when his father returned to Constantius's side. Constantius seems to have been pleased to have his eldest son at his side once more. The two linked up in Gaul before crossing the English Channel to the Isles, where they spent the rest of 305 CE fighting the Picts. That's right. Get them all. Get them all. They lived in modern Scotland. In January of 306 CE, they won a major victory and took the title of Britannicus Maximus II, because Constantius had already conquered Britain once. The army settled for the winter in Eboricum, which is modern York in England. The plan was to resume the campaign in the spring because claiming to have won a war and actually winning a war are Mm -hmm. two different things. Mm -hmm. Constantius was still stationed around York in July of 306 CE when it became clear that the emperor was dying. Oh, an illness stole his life away rapidly. And everyone from Constantine to the officers to the common soldiers knew that when Constantius died, Severus would not favor them. No. A whole rework of the ranks and administration would be in order. Mm -hmm. And how long would the obvious heir survive in a world where all four tetrarchs preferred him and his entire line just didn't exist anymore? Not looking good. Fear and uncertainty rippled through York. The outside world, meanwhile, remained completely ignorant Mm -hmm. of Constantius's condition, which was perfect. Constantius summoned the top brass, including Constantine, to his chambers and made his final will known. He wished his firstborn son, Constantine, to follow him to the imperial purple as Augustus of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Naturally. This is very similar to when Septimius Severus was dying, also in York, and he told Caracalla and Geta, quote, be harmonious, enrich the soldiers, scorn everybody else. <laughs> That was around 95 years ago at this point, and Constantius was now declaring for his own son, although this time he wasn't telling his sons to go basically ruin everything, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because Caracalla is kind of where the crisis started. Yeah. The men around Constantius had spent many years serving the emperor, loved him dearly. Now they had spent many months, close to a year, getting to know his intelligent, driven, and by all accounts, charming son. They could see no downside to siding with Constantine, aside from the Civil War, whatever. What followed was almost certainly a stage-managed production of the officers announcing Constantius' death, proclaiming his final will and testament, and calling on the men to proclaim Constantine as emperor. Then Constantine jumped on a horse and tried to flee, shouting, Oh no, I couldn't possibly be emperor. No, stop. Don't twist my arm like that. Yeah, yeah. 400 years into the empire, and it's still very important that it seems like you really don't want to assume power. That's right. But come on. Constantine, as you said, has been groomed his entire adult life Mm -hmm. to be emperor. And now his father had suddenly died. 
and declared for him. No one in Constantine's position would have seriously rejected the offer. Okay, all of that happened very quickly. Diocletian abdicated in May 305, and in July 306, mm. Constantius, the senior emperor, died. It's just over a year. Mm -hmm. The soldiers immediately declared for Constantine, but now it all gets really confusing. First question, Jordan, are they proclaiming him emperor or Caesar? Ooh, I bet he's, well, I bet his father proclaimed him emperor. Yep. It would appear that Constantius gave his support for Constantine assuming the role of Augustus, mm -hmm. following mm -hmm. him directly. Mm -hmm. But that's rough when the legal chain of succession yeah. is currently Severus. Sure. The troops were probably on board mm -hmm. because obviously... Mm -hmm. Um, but like I said, this is almost certain to cause a civil war because Severus should be next. With this concern in mind, there are two options that the history books say Constantine took, and we're not exactly sure. Either he kept the Augustus title, or he logically went, I should be Caesar, and then I can maybe be accepted into this whole mm -hmm. thing. Regardless of what he chose, he really quickly jumped into action. He got back to the mainland and traveled with haste and a sizable force behind him to Trier, trying to stay ahead of the news. There, he let the Gallic forces know that his father was dead and that he, Constantine, was assuming the Western Caesar or Augustus position. Sure. The men loved it. Clearly, they were all far more loyal to Constantius and mm -hmm. Maximian's legacy yeah. than the Tetrarchy. Yeah. With Britain and Gaul under sway, word was sent to Spain, lands that I said just come under Constantius' rule, and they were like, that sounds like you're going to war. No thanks. <laughs> uh, what do you think Constantine did next? He's in Gaul, touching the provinces of Galerius and Severus. His borders are now right up against them. Mm -hmm. hmm. I don't know. I feel like he's really trying to establish, he still wants to establish peace and a smooth transition. So I don't know. I don't know what he does. He blocks the passes into Gaul oh, with his wow. forces. He was like, no, 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 no. Just like, give me some time. You stay over there. <laughs> just hold on. We'll talk. Don't come over here. Yeah. Yeah, that's what he does. He just kind of blocks any way for the troops to get in, buying himself time. What we'll see is that Constantine is really smart militarily and diplomatically I he makes so. smart plays his a lot yeah the last entire what like 18 to 20 years of his life have just been this yeah diocletian <laughs> and galerius education and experience yeah. yeah as a final kind of oh hey galerius by the way he sent a letter to the emperor mm -hmm. saying i am now augustus or caesar and just so it's clear, here is a beautiful portrait of me wearing purple. <laughs> Pixar, it didn't happen style. Nice. Galerius was not happy. No. Mm -mm. But he wasn't a fool. You know, the, the sources paint him as this like mad tyrant fool, but Galerius was no idiot. Constantine was always going to be a problem. But the emperor likely assumed he had several more years, maybe decades, sure. to resolve that problem. Get a one up on Constantius, yeah. you know. The suddenness of Constantius's death and his remote location at the time mm -hmm. gave Constantine an opening Galerius could never have predicted. That left Galerius with two options. Accept Constantine as Severus's new Caesar or rip the empire apart to put the young man in his place. What do you think Galerius went with? Galerius. Oh, man. 
God, I don't think he wants to rip the Empire apart, but maybe he chooses that, but it just doesn't go his way and it gets shut down quickly. I don't think he wants to rip the Emperor apart. Okay. Empire apart. Yeah, no. So he cho- he you're right. He chose wisely. Yeah. And he accepted Constantine's claim. Uh so in the versions where he claimed the emperorship, it was agreed you can be in the Tetrarchy as Caesar. Mm. Severus is Augustus. In the other version, he's just I'm Caesar and Glarius goes, Fine. Oh, okay. <laughs> so those are just yeah. So war was prevented for now. Now think for a moment. Other than the emperor and the Caesars, who would be unhappy at Constantine suddenly becoming Caesar? This is someone who was in a similar position to Constantine. I mean, children of Caesars, maybe, or fathers of Caesars. I don't know. Someone in the family line. Yeah. yeah Maximian's son. To take power. Maxentius. Yeah. The guy who was supposed to become Caesar oh, when yes. his father retired. Yes. So Maxentius was around 20 at this point still very young mm-hmm. and had, but he had felt his entire life that he was destined to be emperor mm-hmm. he was two when his dad became emperor. yeah yeah that doesn't those those dates don't matter up so he must have been in his early 20s anyway he and constantine had been the sons of emperors and saw their claims taken now constantine had just forced his way yeah into just the tetrarchy took one and max just wanted to do the same their situations were extremely different however yeah, yeah. constantine's father had died opening a spot in the Imperial College, whereas Maxentius's father had voluntarily, in big quotes, abdicated just over a year prior. There wasn't a spot for him. Mm-hmm. Constantine had the armies of multiple provinces. Maxentius had none for the moment. Mm-hmm. See, Maxentius was in Rome. And what troops are available in Rome? The, pre- the Praetorian... Guard. Yes, yeah. exactly. They're still kicking around. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have not played much in the kin- king-making game sure. lately, but that's because the crisis emperors stayed away from Rome. <laughs> yeah, they haven't been <laughs> there. Yeah. You can't kill me if I'm not there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they didn't bring Praetorians with them a lot. They mm-hmm. had their prefect, yeah. but they usually yeah. had their own personal bodyguards. Also, remember how Galerius had declared Italy and Rome would be taxed, just like yeah. everyone else. Yeah. Well, that pissed people off. I can't imagine why. Yeah. Oh, and who is this Severus dude anyway? People are still pissed. Yeah, he just no wants us in. Correct. Like he owns the place. Puppet master's strings still hanging off mm-hmm, his back. Mm-hmm. Screw that guy. And then a bombshell hit Rome that set all this tension alight. Maybe I couldn't fully confirm if this happened. Galerius mm-hmm. called for the disbandment of the Praetorian guards. Yeah. Maybe. If that part didn't happen, then this all was just the bubbling everything else mm-hmm. that set off. But we'll just go with this. If this is true, however, I find it absolutely insanely incompetent that if you plan to essentially disarm a mass, a large military force in your capital and you don't send another large military force to ensure it happens, you're insane. You're stupid. Just be like, Hey guys, stop, stop being a military over there. I mean, obviously, Jordan, you, if I asked you right now if you were to go disband the Praetorians, what do you think is going to happen? The, well, they're going to say no, yep. not politely. Mm-hmm. Maybe kill me. Maybe exactly. send a head back. I don't know. <laughs> and remember that since these guys have been not with the emperors for mm-hmm. almost a century, they're, all their prestige is gone. Yeah. They're, they're like ancient title as these like legendary fighters and defenders right. of the empire. It's just gone. They're just dudes sitting around being bullies. And now they're offered an opportunity to rise up for mm-hmm. someone who would have to owe them. Sure. And so they did. The people of the city 
the the guards, the senators rioted. Nice. Brilliant idea hit. Let's bring back the guy that we liked. Let's bring back the good old days of Maximian. We love Maximian. He was great, but he's far away Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. things are happening quickly. What about his son? Max Entrance is right there. He was supposed to be Caesar. Ah, good. Boom. Perfect opportunity. And now here we are. With the support of the guards in the Senate, he was proclaimed emperor. (laughs) But not really. See, see, well, the hope was that Galerius would accept Maxentius like he had for Constantine. So Maxentius did his best to never call himself Caesar or Augustus, only Princeps Invictus, undefeated prince, which is a really cool way of saying I'm the proper heir. Sure. In late October 306 CE, the Tetrarchy found itself with five men who claimed to be various levels of (laughs) unified and various levels of where they are on the ladder. The only problem was that Galerius was no longer in a forgiving mood (laughs) with these guys saying they're just in the Tetrarchy. (laughs) Instead of accepting this new usurper, Galerius sent word to Severus, who was operating out of Mediolanum, Milan, to assemble his forces. He said, put them down. Northern Italy saw thousands of troops pulled in over the winter of 306-307. In the spring, Severus marched his men south to take back lands Mm -hmm. that ostensibly belonged to him, but which actually rejected him wholeheartedly. Sure. The odds were stacked against Maxentius, however. Despite support from the populace, he did not have many troops, and those Praetorians under his command were just that. Praetorians. Yeah, they don't fight anymore. Yeah, they're not for hard a very veterans. long time. Yeah, yeah. No. Many are just aristocratic sons who yeah. like to bully people yeah. and drink their earnings. Well, soon Severus's army was arrayed outside the walls of Rome. These are the Aurelian walls that we saw Aurelian build before mm-hmm. his untimely death. Well, they're finished now, but they're going to evolve as the centuries come. They're pretty good walls for what they are, though, and it made this siege much more difficult. The people of Rome prepared for a long siege, or even worse, slaughter. Maximian had been sent a purple robe and an offer to join his son in Imperium. Maxentius was sorely disappointed when his father refused to come. Uh, He was like, nah, I don't want that. But Maximian would still play a pivotal role in Severus's siege of Rome. See, almost all the men in Severus's army were longtime veterans under the man who had ruled Italy before, mm-hmm. Maximian. Oh. As they began the siege, the vast majority of Severus, is what my <laughs> notes say, the vast majority of Severus's huge army defected. Oh, they're like, mm, wait, no, no, mm, no, 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 no. Uh, these these making like a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, They declared instead for Maxentius to carry on his father's legacy. Severus did the wise thing, and booked it as fast as he could back to northern Italy. Uh, he found refuge in Ravenna, a highly defensible position where he, where he waited with his remaining men for Galerius to relieve him. But that would be easier said than done, because it would seem Maximian then had a change of heart. Either he had accepted the offer when Severus first marched on Rome, or shortly after he fled. But now Maximian was in it with his son. Maximian came out of retirement and assembled his own forces to quickly lay siege to Ravenna. Now, he knew that Ravenna was a strong position, and that he would need all the men he could muster to hold Galerius off when he inevitably marched into Italy. We're, we're in it now. Gloves yeah, are off. Civil damn. war is on. Mm-hmm. So, he took the diplomatic approach. 
Ravenna was likely going to kick Severus out in favor of Maximian anyway. So Maximian offered to spare Severus's life and protect his dignity should he peacefully surrender. Severus didn't really have a choice, at least not a choice he wanted if he wanted to survive. He surrendered himself in March or early April of 307 CE, effectively forcing his abdication at that same moment. Yeah. Galerius must be just dude's just mad done with this like no shit. one's listening to me they're doing what they want to do what's happening well and we'll talk about this but i mean <laughs> in fairness he's making some dumb decisions that are really not making anyone want to listen to him oh yeah but you know he's just trying to force his way and is upset like a like a spoiled child why don't you listen to me like diocletian exactly you yeah. always listen to diocletian yeah he's just he's just throwing a fit yeah, so he's lost Constantius, which made everything worse. Mm-hmm. Then he had to deal with Constantine. That was annoying. Maxentius had risen up with nothing to mm-hmm. his name. And mm-hmm. now his favorite, Severus, was in enemy uh, hands. Goodbye. Oh, and Maximian's back? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What? Mm-hmm. None of it made sense. Rec- reclaiming the Italian legions and defeating Severus was a major victory for Maxentius and Maximian. But it was by no means a guarantee of long-term victory. Severus had been in a very weak position, but Galerius was at no such disadvantage. He had the East under his command and a loyal Caesar in Egypt as well. Without delay, Galerius assembled his own army from the East. His troops were his own, battle-tested, and loyal. He would save Severus, avenge him if he must, and return Italy to the imperial fold. And as a side note, Maxentius is married to Galerius's daughter. So he's also attacking family at this point. It's all a big mess. If Maxentius had been alone in this fight, he almost certainly would have lost. He had no military or political experience and was still pretty young. But now he had his father at his side, and Maximian had two decades of politics and about four decades of warfare under his belt. In quick order, Maximian assumed command of all the Italian forces and began fortifying all the cities between the Alps and Rome. The people there were encouraged to support the Italian troops and shun those eastern invaders the evil Galerius was marching in. They were all too happy to support their emperor, Maximian. And so it was that Galerius found himself in a horribly hostile environment when he marched toward Rome later in 307 CE. (laughs) Anywhere he went, he could force his will on the people for that moment. But as soon as he left, they were right back to supporting Maximian and Maxentius. Food was scarce. There was no chance they could siege because there were no supply lines safe. He got within 60 miles of Rome, but it was clear that he could not take this territory by force. The people's will was simply too strong in this moment. And so he retreated toward friendly lands, back toward Split, where he figured there might be someone who could help sort this whole mess out. (laughs) What? what, Huh? Yeah. What? But isn't... What? Yeah. No. Yeah. (laughs) So Severus, meanwhile, Mm -hmm. was dead. Oh, <laughs> meanwhile, he, yeah. just, he didn't make it out of the yeah. city. <laughs> what happened to Emperor Severus II uh, will probably never be known with he, certainty. He, he died. It's, Some it. claim he was cl- killed the moment he surrendered to Maximian. The story goes that Maximian promised leniency and then oh. had the man executed there and then. Another version goes that he was shipped off and held prisoner near Rome. Mm. There, he, he had been put on public display. His dignity be damned. Uh, a theory is that Severus was kept this way until Galerius marched into Italy, at which time Maxentius decided to have him executed without consulting his father. Another version from Lactantius says that he, Severus, was given the option to slit his own wrists. 
Whatever the truth, Severus II had ruled for about a year as Caesar, and then another eight-ish months as Augustus. He had been a lowborn soldier who happened to be good friends with another soldier who rose to great prominence. Galerius had strapped a jetpack to his friend's back the same way Diocletian had done for him. The difference was that Diocletian had made sure there was fuel in the jetpack, made sure it ran well, and then helped guide Galerius, mm-hmm, whereas mm-hmm, Galerius mm-hmm. went smack, good and luck, bye. Yeah, I don't know. It just really like should have looked at history a little bit, man. Yeah, like you could have never, you should have never thought this was gonna work for you. Yeah, it, like, <laughs> it would have been so easy to just be like, all right, Constantius can have his Caesar, and I'll choose mine. Mm-hmm. It, you know, Maxentius probably still would have been left out, I think. I think Constantine probably. would have been made Caesar, and Galerius would have had probably his nephew or Severus, and things probably would have worked out. Maybe mm-hmm. they would have fought. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But, yeah, his decisions were not great. So, yeah, uh, Galerius had done terrible things for his friend. Um, he had sent him into hostile territory where the people were hoping for someone else to be Caesar, and instead they got this random dude that they never heard of, they did not like him, and they... Frankly, Galerius sent obscene orders that mm-hmm, made it mm-hmm. impossible for Severus to maintain. He never stood a chance. This was all quite bad. It is reported that as Galerius rode out of Italy, he immediately sent word to Diocletian's retirement palace. He, uh, he's like, I could not get a concrete answer on what was said in response. Diocletian's famous quote I mentioned goes, if you could show the cabbage that I planted with my own hands to your emperor... He definitely wouldn't dare suggest that I replace the peace and happiness of this place with the storms of a never satisfied greed. That's a cool and fun quote. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, But as all things go in history that are cool and fun, it probably is not true. I spent too much time hunting the origin of that quote. Best I could find was a reference to Aurelius Victor, who supposedly quoted Diocletian there. But uh, at least the translation of that work I read did not mentioned cabbages so I don't, I don't know where i couldn't find it and googling it again would just yeah. be like yeah he said this like but where does it say sure. he said like, that where's the source what do you mean yeah, who said that he said it originally yeah so we're, we're just gonna go with he was like no i'm gonna just stay peaceful over here right. i don't want that mess don't want it i don't want it at all <laughs> yeah so late 307 diocletian declined he's like i don't want to come back no thanks he he was genuinely tired of power and rule yeah Wanted to chill in his palace, a palace, which I, I found out just while researching the cabbage quote and wanted to put it in here. So it's abandoned for about three centuries after Diocletian's death. Mm-hmm. And then it gets reoccupied in the seventh century by refugees who fled invaders. And then they tr- like took the worn out ancient palace and turned it into a mini city. Mm-hmm. I oh, love that. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. It is cool. Because remember, uh, palaces are massive complexes. Yeah, they're huge with... Giant Thousands of people stuff. could yeah. live in them comfortably. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Back to Maxentius's revolt. Severus was dead and Diocletian was staying out of it. But there's still a wild card in all this. Constantine. Mm-hmm. Where did his loyalties lie in Maxentius's revolt? He's not a fan of Galerius, obviously, but he also is an astute tactician. Would he side with the top dog who had recently allowed him to be Caesar or would he side with his father's old friend, the man who gave Constantius, and by Constantine, everything they had? Who do you think Constantine went with? Option C. He said, I'm going to hold my borders and watch you fight and see what happens. Close. Close. <laughs> okay. Because that's pretty much what he does, but he does align himself with Maximian. Okay. <laughs> with the express, like, 
but I'm not getting involved. Yeah, okay, okay. So Constantine chose to align himself with Maximian with the agreement that the alliance would be sealed in marriage. Mm. You got a son? Who's got the daughter? Maximian <laughs> had an eight-year-old daughter called Fausta. And look at that. Crispus, mm-hmm, Constantine's mm-hmm. son, is somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah. Oh, His God. date of birth is actually ranging from 295 to 305. So he, well, But he would have been somewhere. Sure. He's still a child. He would have been around the age. Yeah. Would have been fine. Also, side note on Fausta's age, David Potter says that she was eight at this time, which would have put her born around 299. I just happened to see on Wikipedia that her date of birth was listed as 289, 10 years earlier. Oh. So she would have been around 18. But that led to some digging on her date of birth, and it's just not known. Sure. So we're going to stick with the eight. Whatever. They're whatever. Similar ages. Similar ages. So it was decided that Fausta would marry Constantine. What? <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. Doesn't, what? Yeah. It's kind of weird. So uh, yay child marriages to Ugh. grown-ass men with children of that same age. Yeah. Um, although we have no idea what happened to her, uh, just as a side note, Minervina, Constantine's concubine wife, yeah. was dead by this point. Okay. I, that seemed right. to there be... There wasn't much cons- written about her anyways, there right? There wasn't. Yeah. There so was she was probably dead before he moved back with That's his father. That's a theory. Yeah. Either she died right away as he got into this position or before. Um, but anyway, uh, the rebellion is now thickened. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. as I said, it, it hadn't actually, because what Con- Constantine never said, I'll be a, in no. an alliance with you. It was more, we won't fight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're good. We're um, good. I'm not going to get involved, though. Yeah, because Galerius, you know, he, he gave me this, so I mm-hmm. I should be a good boy. Um, but this leaves also just this weird thing that's not going to be resolved anytime soon. Uh, who's the Caesar of the West? No one right now? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, excuse me, who's the Augustus of the West? Well, because Caesar is is Constantine. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, who? Uh, it's like I, I don't know. Don't write the, no the, one because he didn't take. Yeah. The Augustus. legal yeah. answer would be Constantine. Sure. He's the Caesar of Severus mm-hmm. officially. Right. But and Severus is you know not yeah. here anymore. Mm. Interesting. Anyway, on top of everything that's happening, Maximian and Maxentius are now not getting along. Go. <laughs> Come on, man. It's not fully clear the reasons. Uh, perhaps Maxentius wanted to focus on defense and hold what he had, uh, whereas Maximian is this ambitious guy yeah. who used to rule most of the empire yeah. and wants to take it back. Like more, more. Perhaps the father and some son simply just didn't get along with each other. It's entirely possible. That would make a lot of sense for him originally just being like, I'm not going to help you. And he's like, oh, you have a lot of support now? Okay, 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 yeah, I'll come back. And also, Maximian seems to have, like, accepted his son not becoming Caesar. Oh, yeah. 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 He he was like, oh, that's not going to work out for you. He's yeah. like, oh, it might work out for me. Yeah. I'm going <laughs> to... Yeah, right. I'm going to go back. Whatever the case, Maximian felt that he was the experienced senior member of this imperial duo, which made sense. Well, Maxentius felt that he had been elevated by the will of his people, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. was in charge. And this disagreement would all come to a head shortly after Galerius left Italy with his armies. The following story comes from Lactantius, and it goes like this. In early 308 CE, Maximian called a large public gathering to give a speech. Nothing out of the ordinary there. His son and co-emperor, and yes, Maxentius has taken to calling himself emperor at this point because playing nice with Galerius Mm -hmm. hadn't worked. Um, He joined him on stage before the assembled citizens and soldiers. 
Maxentius must have been completely blindsided when his father then began a speech blaming Maxentius <laughs> for all the problems <laughs> of their little empire. The crowd was also shocked uh, what? hearing their beloved Maximian say such horrible things about their beloved Maxentius. Mm-hmm. What's going on here? Then Maximian grew violent. Oh, He took hold of his son's imperial purple cloak and ripped it from his shoulders. As the story goes, he then shoved the young man from atop the platform on which they stood, and Maxentius fell into the crowd. What do you think happened next? Well, if the crowd seemed displeased, uh, well, okay. Maybe rioting started. Maybe the crowd was supporting the son, and then the dad was like, yeah, but I got the soldiers. So. Uh, no. No. Everyone sided with Maxentius. Yep. <laughs> yep. What? It must have been the most stomach-wrenchingly what? like <gasps> situation in any human life when yeah. Maximian realized that the soldiers and people were not won over. And they're just like, <gasps> our boy okay. just got pushed off the stage. <laughs> mm, we're not okay with that. Yeah. Not okay with that. They decided to side with their young emperor. Yeah. Um, the one had, who like had the will of them. Yeah. Right. Originally. He had risen up so bravely mm-hmm. and stood up against Severus and Galerius. It would seem to them that now Maximian had overstayed his welcome. Yeah. Shortly after this little revolt within a revolt, Maximian was told in no uncertain terms to get the hell out of Italy. That's wild that they didn't just kill him. Yeah. I think they loved him a lot. And that was probably a big part of it. That's just kind of like, okay, we get it. It's like, get out of here, you senile old man. Yep. <laughs> you're done. Your, your, day has, your day has passed. So long, and thanks for all the fish. I hope Jake listens to this. I put that in there for him. Um, so, but where can an ex-ex emperor go when he is forced to resign for a second time? Dude, just go help grow some cabbages. Ah, yeah. Just go. Well, <laughs> the, and maybe he could, but the the place he went was to live with his new son-in-law up in Gaul. Okay. So in so we can fester and mount another revolt. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Maximian moved in with Constantine. Uh, Maxentius ruled his little oh. enclave, and Galerius was running out of ideas. Yeah. And this is, you know, in the middle of 308 CE. Yeah, Galerius, your ideas should be make peace and have a stable emperor that, empire that can prosper. That's what your ideas should be. Right. So we saw that after the failed invasion of Italy, Galerius attempted to coax Diocletian yeah. out of retirement, helped sort things out. Diocletian had declined. But by mid-308, about a year later, it was clear that a firm hand was needed. And oh yeah, we still need to officially replace Severus. Right. um, Who has been dead for nearly a year by this point. And so Diocletian agreed to serve as consul with Galerius in this year and organized a meeting in Carnuntum, which is in eastern modern Austria. On November 11th, 308 CE, Diocletian would make his final official contribution to the Imperial College. Galerius called the meeting, but it was only himself, Diocletian, and Maximian who attended. The three who had ruled together for so long. So, they need to decide a few things. And I'm just going to list them out, and then we're going to discuss what you think is going to happen. So, how are we handling Constantine, who was essentially a very legitimate usurper and who had been styling himself as Augustus of the West mm-hmm. since Severus's death. Styling, not claiming. Well, that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, well, obviously Severus died. I was a Caesar. I'm the Augustus uh-huh, now. Uh-huh. 
Second, how are we handling Maxentius, who is explicitly a usurper and who murdered his rightful liege Severus? Sure. How are we handling Maximian, whose status as usurper is so clouded because of his previous absolute authority? And finally, who the hell is Augustus of the West? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what do you think? What are we doing? Oh, man. Diocletian involved. He's tired. Tired, angry old man at this point. He's probably like, hey, man, they're just in power now. You got to deal with it. To whom? Uh, he's telling Galatian? Is that his name? Galerius, Galerius is the emperor. Yeah, he's telling Galerius that these two, uh, uh, Constantine's Augustus of the West. All right, mm, okay. all right, all right. Max Simeon, is that Max the young Simeon, one? the old one. Yep. Max Simeon's the old one. Mm-hmm. Max Anxious. Max Anxious. Yep. Young dude's just he's going to be part of the the Diocletian that doesn't really exist that exists now. Still, mm-hmm. he's in charge over here. Okay. They're friends, and we're just going to leave the senile old man alone up there in Gaul. Okay, just you're you're alone. you're one for three. Perfect. Okay, good. So uh, <laughs> Constantine, or you know what, Max Simeon, mm-hmm. you were told to retire. Yeah. You're retired. Yeah. Yeah. Go yeah, back yeah. to Gaul. <laughs> Go live with Constantine. Be his advisor. Do whatever you want. But you're not emperor You anymore. are not in power. Right. Yeah. Constantine, you are not going to be Augustus. Dang, you are not the father. No. That's rough. Yeah. So Constantine, Wait, who, okay. uh, if he originally called himself Augustus and got demoted and then now called himself mm-hmm, Augustus, mm-hmm. he is now demoted for the second time to Caesar. He will remain Caesar of the West, despite being Caesar to a dead Augustus. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And... I'm saying all this without reading my notes. So the last piece, Augustus of the West. Yeah. You couldn't have guessed this because you don't know who this is. Is it just a random person? It is. Oh, my God. Um, It was decided that since all these issues had (laughs) arisen because Galerius was putting his military friends and his nephew in high positions. Yeah. That the logical choice was for Galerius to, to appoint one of his military <laughs> friends as Augustus. I'm like, what do you, we just, we literally, we literally just did this. Yeah. We just did this and it didn't go well. Yeah. Uh, so that, <laughs> he yeah, said, that's the plan. We're going to put a new guy in. Run it back. Take two. Also, Max just go fuck yourself. Oh, they just said you don't have, you that. don't, that's you're a usurper. It's not going to work. You need to leave. That's not going to work. Yeah. So not, not, it, it's not better. No, it's not, <laughs> it's not really better because Constantine still has an, an agreement with, uh, well, that's with, with Maximian who has with, no power anymore. The old one? Yeah. Oh, I thought he made an agreement with the young one. No, he married Maximian's daughter. Oh. Yeah. The old one had a daughter that young still? Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> his son's only in his 20s, and old dudes be banging. I know. That's just... Uh, yeah. History's weird. And who knows? She might be 18, in which case she's almost Max Centris' age. That's true. It's so hard to say. still behind. Anyway, the new guy is called Licinius, but we're going to look at him in more detail in our next episode, since he's going to play a large role later. Mm-hmm. So, Constantine easily came out of this the best sure of everybody once again he had claimed something that he probably should have waited to be granted mm-hmm. and then still got something lesser in return without having to pay anything all the while he never had to leave his territory yeah uh, nor did he have to make any promises or guarantees right meanwhile maximian was probably super depressed by now yeah uh he had loved ruling and like most men in history, he was not content to give up absolute power and be an ordinary person. 
You uh, wouldn't be. God, I hate that ordinary person. Right. Very, yeah. very lavishly retired in charge of still your compound of people. To right. Wait on you hand and foot. Exactly. <laughs> like Diocletian was fine with just ruling a little complex with a yeah, bunch of money. And chilling. <laughs> I didn't put this in here, but Maximian was given essentially an emperor's like wealth. Yeah. As a final like, sure. hey, don't rise up again. Just go. Yeah. Could have done it. Could have easily done it. Um, but now he was sworn to live out a life of monotony and boredom. Monotony. Still, he could serve his son-in-law and help secure the dynasty for the foreseeable mm-hmm, future. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but Maximian will be in some way related down to like grandchildren of every emperor for the next like 35 years. That's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. Um, but that's what these like intermarriages mm-hmm. did. Um, after the conference of Carnuntum, uh, Maximian returned to Gaul to sit at Constantine's side. It is not clear how much of an advisory role he actually served, but he was certainly at court and had plenty of knowledge and experience to share. Around this time, Maxentius experienced the time-honored tradition of most Roman emperors. Maxentius, again, being the younger one, yep. was in Italy. Yeah, I know it's really confusing with all the similar mm-hmm. names. Some dude in Maxentius's empire rose up and declared himself emperor. <laughs> Why? It's well, crazy. <laughs> I know. This dude's in North Africa, and um, that's the place currently feeding Italy. Yes. Since Egypt has yes. not been an option. Yeah. This might have seemed like a great time for Constantine or even Licinius mm-hmm. to invade Italy. Sure. But shrewd heads prevailed and pointed out that Italy was kind of a mess at the moment. Um, and all that winning it would do would hand the victor a starving capital <laughs> and a new rebellious province like, across the sea. Nah, just, we'll just, you just, you do your thing. Can you go deal with that you, you rebellion? Thing, <laughs> we'll fight you when you're done. Yeah. So while Maxentius spent 309 uh, successfully putting down this revolt, Constantine did what he had been doing basically since joining his father four years ago fighting barbarians Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he spent much of 309 and 310 across the rhine doing emperor things like killing his enemies and building a really cool bridge to remind him them that he can come back whenever he wants right but then something very odd happened word arrived to constantine in germania that maximian had declared himself emperor again oh my god this old man (laughs) just needs to just needs to relax yeah it's time to kill him now i guess because it's uh he's had two very generous opportunities to peacefully go away (laughs) to peacefully go away is a good way of putting it (laughs) well apparently uh, max simeon who had been staying with constantine's court for two years by this yeah just walked into the city of arles one day in a purple robe and called on the legions to join him and be handily rewarded hey I'm the emperor now. Again. What? Part three. Huh? So Constantine Constantine quickly turned his forces around and marched across that wonderful new bridge Mm -hmm. back into Gaul. Mm -hmm. Maximian, once again, seeing that his public declaration of Imperium was being met with resounding... No. What what are you talking about, dude? No. Uh, He fled the city. Why does he think it's going to work? I, I just know. don't understand. He seems out of touch. I don't understand. He hunkered down in Marseille. I'm not sure if it's Marseille or Marseille, but anyway, sure. which Constantine, 
Constantine. <laughs> I keep wanting it's Constantine quickly. Ah, so I go yeah. Constantine. Constantine quickly surrounded. But it was plainly obvious that no one wanted to house Maximian. No. <laughs> no. What do you dude, you've just now twice in a row claimed yeah. something that had no reason to be claimed? Right. Against people who have armies? Like yeah. what, what do you like, do it? The once great and powerful emperor of the West was now kind of pitiful. Yeah. And clearly out of touch with the current situation. The city surrendered before Constantine was forced to assault the walls. We have a panegyric about this moment and what it must have meant to Maximian to personally. Quote, I do not believe that when he came forth into the light, he would have accepted the offer of life, which was offered, but rather he ran into an unavoidable fate and one that would bring an unjust end to many men. He brought a voluntary death to himself. Mm-hmm. But here we have another issue of propaganda. There are other versions of this story, which seem to help make Maximian's death look far more justified and paint Constantine in a better light. In other tellings, Fausta, Constantine's very young wife, mm-hmm. and Maxent- I put Maxentius's daughter, Maximian's daughter, is approached by her father, Maximian, about killing Constantine. <gasps> What's our plot? <laughs> Somehow, this child then had the balls to go along with the plan, but oh. tell Constantine. Oh, okay, right, right, right. Secretive. She was like, I'm a double agent. Exactly. Against her father, mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy. So when Maxentius... Why do I keep saying... I have Maxentius in here. So when Maximian planned to enter Constantine's chambers and murder him, he ended up murdering a eunuch instead. Dang. Which is messed up. Not great. Yeah. Like, what? Like, did you really need to put a eunuch in the bed? I just need a body double. Yeah. Just need someone in That's that bed right. to be That's murdered. Right. To not catch him in the act of trying to murder, but I just you need to murder him. Just you murder him. Yeah. Just murder that guy. The second story, almost certainly a later fabrication. It just seems too crazy. Mm-hmm. But it helps to show that Constantine, while savvy politically, was not all in all a merciful man. Listen... The, you didn't need to have a death threat for this man to be killed at this point. Right. He's had too many opportunities and keeps messing them up grandly. Yes. He, he, the obvious answer is, well, Your you liability. need to die now because yeah. we gave you a chance twice mm-hmm. to just be quiet and you can't. So. Yeah. My, my next line is <laughs> Maximian deserved to be executed. It, yeah. In this situation. Yeah. yeah. He brought it 100% on himself yep. without a direct anything. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, regardless of yeah, like you said, murder plot or anything, it's like you you try to usurp the throne twice. Yeah, like quickly. That, you're destabilizing the empire mm-hmm. with this shit. Um, so yeah, Constantine almost certainly told Maximian, yeah, either kill yourself or I have to kill mm-hmm. you. Like mm-hmm. there's no choice anymore. Um, and so it was that Maximian, second man of the Tetrarchy and emperor for 20 years, was dead. Yeah, Diocletian probably found out about the death of his longtime friend and companion around the time the men with hammers showed up (laughs) at his palace to smash every bust of Maximian and scratch his name out of every inscription because Constantine had issued Damnatio Memoriae on Maximian because, you know, the multi-time usurpation. Yeah. That must have been really hard for Diocletian to endure. It was, after all, his decision to force Maximian to resign twice. Mm Mm-hmm despite the man clearly wanting to remain in power. While Diocletian was content to farm and chill, Maximian had needed more. He could have just left, like Diocletian could have just left Maximian in charge and gone and retired himself. 
I mean, sure. He could have done that. I don't think these problems would have arisen if Max Simeon had remained in charge. You think so? You don't think he would have gotten well. extra greedy and just I don't think so. started doing wild I think, things? I don't think he wanted more. I think he wanted what he had. That's fair, but I'm going to say that Diocletian had some foresight into being, we need an insurance of stability, which means we need to voluntarily start passing power down to establish a precedent. It's a good idea. And this man was like... No, no, I want I power. power. I want it. Yep. So Diocletian watched his system fall apart. He saw his friends die and then watched his friends' sons tear each other apart for portions of mm-hmm. his tetrarchy. Mm-hmm. Galerius had been Diocletian's favorite, but clearly he was not living up to what Diocletian had achieved. And unfortunately for Galerius, he would not even outlive his mentor. Nor would their most powerful policy outlive them, the Great Persecution. It is clear that Galerius was a massive proponent of the Christian persecution. He continued the policy after taking over as emperor and believed that the government was better off if the Christians just stopped being Christians, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. they just, like, weren't anymore. You could know? you just not? Yeah. Like, if you didn't, that'd be cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was clearly not working. Christians were a sizable minority. And many across the empire did not fear or hate them the way a lot in the East did. The persecution had done little more than alienate East from West, neighbor from neighbor. Mm -hmm. So in April of 311 CE, Galerius issued his final edict from his deathbed. The Edict of Toleration. We have this edict, and I will share a summed up version for you now. It is a little long, but we'll get through it. Quote, Among all the other arrangements that we are always making for the benefit and utility of the state, we have heretofore wished to repair all things in accordance with the laws and public discipline of the Romans and to ensure that even the Christians who abandoned the practice of their ancestors should return to good sense. Indeed, for some reason or other, such self-indulgence assailed and idiocy possessed those Christians that they did not follow the practices of the ancients. So still a pretty negative tone towards the Christians, obviously. Mm -hmm. Quote, then when our order was issued stating that they should return themselves to the practices of the ancients, many were subjected to peril and many were even killed. Many more persevered in their way of life. Like, damn, we did nasty stuff to you guys and you still want to worship this single God? It's crazy, but respectable. (laughs) Quote, we have decided to extend our most speedy indulgence to these people as well so that Christians may once more establish their own meeting places, so long as they do not act in a disorderly way. Consequently, in accordance with our indulgence, they ought to pray to their God for our health and the safety of the state, so that the state may be kept safe on all sides, and they may be able to live safely and security securely in their homes. Which is a nice touch, I suppose. Oh. Uh, if you're not going to do the traditional sacrifice and whatever, can you at least pray to yeah. your God yeah, yeah, yeah. for the state? Mm-hmm. That And that goes back to what is an important feature, feature of the Great Persecution, not a justification, but they truly believe that Christianity was an existential threat to the empire. And so this is kind of just uh, throwing the hands up in the air and going, well, it didn't work. Can you not destroy everything, please? Mm-hmm. But now the juicy bit, because I've been heavily implying that Galerius is not long for this world. Uh, And now we're going to look at that gruesome tale. (laughs) On the deaths of the persecutors is Lactantius's short work 
on Diocletian's reign and the Great Persecution. And it concludes with how all the leaders of this regime died. How accurate is it? Unclear. But it is based somewhere in reality. So let's take a look at how our old friend Galerius shook off this mortal coil. And now, I'm being very serious here. If you are squeamish or you are eating, mm. I don't recommend you listen to about the next few minutes of this. It's <laughs> disgusting. Lactantius says, quote, When Galerius was in the 18th year of his rule, God struck him with an incurable plague. A malignant ulcer formed itself low down in his secret parts secret. and spread by degrees. The physicians attempted to eradicate it mm -hmm. and healed mm -hmm. up the place affected. But the sore, after having been skinned over, broke out again. A vein burst and the blood flowed in such quantity as to endanger his life. The blood, however, was stopped, although with difficulty. He grew emaciated, pallid and feeble, and the bleeding then staunched. The ulcer began to be insensible to the remedies applied and a gangrene seized all the neighboring parts. It diffused itself wider the more the corrupted flesh was cut away and everything employed as the means of cure served but to aggravate the disease. Already approaching to its deadly crisis, it had occupied the lower regions of his body. His bowels came out and his whole seat putrefied. <laughs> The stench was so foul as to pervade not only the palace, but even the whole city. And no wonder, for by that time, the passages from his bladder and bowels, having been devoured by the worms, mm. became indiscriminate, and his body, with intolerable anguish, was dissolved into one mass of corruption. They applied warm flesh of animals to the chief seat of the disease, that the warmth might draw out the minute worms. And accordingly, when the dressings were removed, oh, this is the part that's gross, Ugh. there issued forth an innumerable swarm. Nevertheless, the prolific disease had hatched swarms much more abundant to prey upon and consume his intestines. Mm -hmm. These things happened in the course of a complete year. And at length, overcome by calamities, he was obliged to acknowledge God, and he cried aloud in the intervals of raging pain that he would re-edify the church, which he had demolished, and make atonement for his misdeeds. And when he was near his end, he published the Edict of Toleration. <laughs> he died shortly after in May of 317, and somehow Diocletian, the oldest of the Tetrarchs, was the last one standing. But he would follow his comrade shortly after. After witnessing his grand plan for the, empire, for the Empire fall, his health began to fade. By December of that same year, Diocletian fell ill and died. Some claim that he grew so despondent that he took his own life. Diocletian is a very interesting man to study. He has all the trappings of an authoritarian monarch, while also having the wonderful quality of a desire to let go of power, something that rarely happens in this world. Mm-hmm. He made plenty of mistakes, the great persecution being top of that list, and he witnessed it fail in his lifetime. But he also stabilized the greatest empire in the world, restoring order where it had been lacking for generations. And despite what he saw as he died, the death of the Tetrarchy would not be the death of the empire. Because next time, we will watch as the new generation of emperors and Caesars work together fight one another and decide <laughs> once and for all if Christianity and the empire 
can coexist. Oh, they more than coexist. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so that I decided this time to to cut this one in half because there was just so much to talk about with all the players, and Constantine does a ton once he's actually Emperor too. So I thought we could spend most of today just going through the end of the Tetrarchy. Essentially, it's still there. But not really. Kinda, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's really all falling apart now. These are the Tetrarchic Wars. Mm -hmm. We're in them now. They're they're just kind of little skirmishes and then finally some big wars next time to decide. Hey, more once war and, for all. and destroying of the Empire. Yeah. So we've got we've got a lot to cover next time, but today we don't have a departing demise. I'm curious, or not departing demise, all our like rounds and stuff. I'm curious how long this ended up being. I don't know, like an hour and a half. Yeah, probably about a normal length of an episode, which is what I was hoping for. I looked at the page count for this. So without the my, you know, mastery mm -hmm. military might and stuff, there's twenty-five-ish pages mm -hmm, of just mm -hmm. script. And I looked at the Diocletian episode, and without the extra stuff at the end, it was like ten more pages than that. Nice. I was like, God, that damn. makes sense. Yeah. So I figured this way I can be more steady. And we can get more videos out or podcasts out, but uh, yeah, that's it. I'm gonna I'm gonna finish Constantine next time. This is the first time we've done a part one, part two. So much, so much, so much. And it yeah, and he just got started. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's just begun the glorious reign. All right, well, we will see you guys next time. All right, bye.